Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Earlier this spring, the Trump administration asked judges to toss out the entire Affordable Care Act, setting up another likely Supreme Court battle and raising questions about the future of health insurance for millions of Americans. Meanwhile, the 2018 election brought a blue wave to Colorado, with Democrats in full control of state government for the first time in many years. Corporate Department Chair Mike King moderates a discussion with Denver shareholders Mike Feely, Sarah Mercer, and Daryl Landall, and Senior Policy Advisor and Counsel Emily Felder from the firm's Washington, D.C. office. They analyze the new political order for health care, discuss pending legislation, and engage in an open roundtable discussion. So this is going to be hard-hitting, and the more I prepared over the weekend, uh, the more excited I got for this panel this evening. Um, There is an awful lot going on other than the Mueller report, and the problem is that sucked up all the oxygen on both sides of the aisle. So um, the Affordable Care Act is in very serious constitutional jeopardy. So we'll just start with that. And um, we're going to go in-depth on that here this evening, and then what comes next um, you all will be able to get in the game with our audience participation. We've got 15 poll questions. We'll probably do the first five and then some panel time. Uh, and then as we go along, get your input from the room. Uh, but without further ado, I want to introduce the rest of our panel. We have with us here this evening uh, Daryl Landall on my left, uh, just spatially, not necessarily politically. <laughs> And he comes to us by way of DeVita Medical Group. Daryl advises healthcare providers in structuring complex healthcare transactions and relationships. He focuses heavily on the evolving, dare I say, innovative fields of provider managed care and value based payment. And we'll hit on some of that a little bit later this evening. Uh, next up, we have Emily Felder, Senior Policy Advisor and Counsel in Brownstein's DC office, which uh, happens to be the number two policy shop in the country. Uh, Before coming to Brownstein, Emily served with Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. That is a mouthful. I'm following my own rule of no acronyms until we use it the first time. So from now on, that's CMS, (laughs) where she was the chief liaison between Congress and the agency that runs Medicare and Medicaid and implements the Affordable Care Act. Prior to that, she served as counsel to members uh, of Congress on a wide range of health care issues. Next up, we have Sarah Mercer. Sarah's experience in government dates back to 2009 when she was elected to the Edgewater City Council. Uh, That is some good stuff. To this day, one of her most proud life accomplishments remains cracking the code on how to get the city to pick up the recycling along with the trash. (laughs) What year was that? (laughs) Good job, though. That's important stuff. Because I I know that um, my granny, rest her soul, believed that it was all a conspiracy just to make people feel better. They didn't actually recycle the recycling. Like, Granny, can't be that cynical. Um, so Sarah has spent the first half of her career practicing oil and gas litigation at a boutique law firm here in town. Just before joining our state and local government group, uh, she was chief of staff to Colorado Chief Justice Michael Bender, helping run the state's judicial branch. Um, now, the gentleman to my far right, but certainly not politically, uh, Mike Feely, uh, Mike is someone that you all probably know well from his time in the state Senate from 93 to 2001, uh, elected by his caucus to serve as Senate minority leader for seven of his eight years in office uh, from 94 to 01. 
As member of the General Assembly's Executive Committee, he was responsible for policy administrative oversight of the Colorado Legislature. During his last year in office, in a Rocky Mountain News survey of his Senate colleagues, Mike was chosen as the Senate's most effective member, a remarkable honor for a member of the minority party. So um, now that we've got it all teed up and ready, uh, we're going to see just who's in the room. This is a completely anonymous poll, so take out your phone. And if you just text to that magic phone number... Panelists included. You guys are not disenfranchised. Yes. Uh, so we're just going to take a snap poll of who's in the room here. Get a little, uh, little bit warmed up. So once you're, once you've joined the session, feel free to vote on this first question. Um, we're of course selling all this data for lots of money. No, completely anonymous. All right. So we're we're going to call the room. Oh, it's still moving around. About 14 Democrats, 10 Republicans, 7 unaffiliated, 1 Libertarian, and a couple of folks who haven't figured out the device yet. Uh, moving right along, in the 2016 elections, again, completely anonymous, how did you vote? Uh, a, Donald Trump, B, Hillary Clinton, C, other, D, did not vote. Okay, uh, this room... <laughs> This room, we have a pretty clear winner of the straw poll. Uh, it's very blue, a lot of blue up there. Hillary Clinton with 27, other with five, did not vote with five. Uh, Donald Trump had two. So we'll reserve commentary on this slide and move on to did health care issues impact your vote? A, some, B, significantly, C, not at all. So health care issues uh, affected people's vote to some degree, 21 folks, significantly 12 folks, uh, not at all eight. Uh, those are pretty telling numbers, but we do have a self-selected group of healthcare experts, all of you in the room. So take that with a little grain of salt. Now, just for fun, this is a question that people have been asking out on the campaign trail because the campaign began like two years ago, it seems, uh, with about 25 candidates on the Democratic side. Um, so this question gets asked. And they asked for a show of hands. Bernie asked for a show of hands. We're not going to do that. We respect your privacy too much, so we're going to use this device and then sell the data. So <laughs> please do respond uh, with your health care coverage is A, employer-based, B, Medicare, C, Medicaid, D, purchased individually uh, on the market or otherwise, or E, other. And, and I didn't have the heart to put I have no health care on there because... We all have health care now, right? So we're up to 36 employer-based, no one Medicare, no one Medicaid, three people purchased individually. And I'm not sure if that's another or not, a little blue sliver. I'm going to call that one for other. Uh, hopefully that person has health care. So Bernie asked the same follow-up question. I'm not totally original. I'm giving attribution, though. So follow-up question. I would favor Medicare for all for health care coverage. I, I thought about complicating this one with strongly agree, slightly agree, all that. We're, we're making you be binary here. This is a, not a scientific poll, so don't hold me to it. Medicare for all is going to tally uh, yes, 15, 23 no's. Okay, now here's the telling follow-up question. And Bernie doesn't ask this one. Uh, I would favor Medicare for all for health care coverage, even if it eliminated my employer-based health care and required tax increases. Okay, that's actually pretty impressive. Uh, those numbers are close. So those of you who said yes to Medicare for all the first time around <clears throat> stuck to your guns, 
when asked if you would pay for it. So credit to you all. Um, I expected to see some discrepancy on this slide, and we have another pairing later that gets into that little bit of a dichotomy between I like this until I have to pay for it, kind of like I-70 renovations. So I'd like to uh, kick it off with Emily Felder, and uh, we'll come back to more polling, I promise. It's so much fun, we can't stand it. Uh, Emily, the Affordable Care Act, um, talk to us a little bit about what happened in late March with the administration, Department of Justice at the direction of the administration, uh, joining in the Texas v. Azar Challenge. Sure. So, you know, that was sort of a surprise to a lot of folks. I mean, you know, the DOJ decided that they were going to um, fully support O'Connor's opinion that overturned the ACA in its entirety. So at the end of last year, Judge O'Connor decided, you know, there was a large lawsuit with a number of uh, states that sort of sued against the federal government to overturn the ACA, and Judge O'Connor decided to rule for the plaintiffs and overturn the ACA on the grounds that the individual mandate was unconstitutional because Congress had acted to remove the taxation part of it. And so you'll recall that the Supreme Court decision was all based on upholding the ACA as a tax. And so the Judge O'Connor decision sort of threw the ACA back into the forefront of conversation. And I think a lot of folks in D.C., a lot of members of Congress were sort of dismayed by that. I think that this has been, you know, the number one topic that people have been talking about in healthcare for nearly a decade. And I think there's a little bit of fatigue almost in Congress to say, okay, now we're back at it. Um, and so the DOJ decided to support Judge O'Connor's decision, and now it's going on appeal, and it's going to be taken up by the Fifth Circuit, I believe, in July. So uh, most unfortunate for all the health care wonks and constitutional law wonks that, again, the Mueller report has sucked up all the oxygen both sides of the aisle, uh, this is something we should be talking about. In uh, my humble opinion, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, and we'll have a, a client alert that will come out after this event. So those of you who want to dig in on the con law more, we promise we'll, we'll push more material out to you. But Chief Justice Roberts hinged that fifth deciding vote on the congressional power to tax, finding the individual mandate to be a tax, even though the politicians at the time said, we're not taxing you, because you right. can't say you're taxing people. Um, so he still found it to be a tax to save the law. And in the process of doing that, though, he also said, couldn't uphold it under the Commerce Clause and couldn't uphold it under the Necessary and Proper Clause. And so the fact that Justice Roberts is already on the record leaves very little running room for this current challenge. Absolutely. And if you read Justice O'Connor's opinion, it seems like it's written just for John Roberts. Because John Roberts, as Mike said, laid out sort of, in order for this to be constitutional, it has to be a tax. Well, what is a tax? A tax, you know, raises revenue for the government. It's based on your income. And all of those factors were fulfilled by the way that the ACA was written, the way that the individual mandate was taxed. So if you did not have health insurance, you had to pay a percentage of your income or a flat fee, whichever was higher. And so he looked into all of those details and said, this is absolutely a tax. 
Now Congress acted at the end of 2017 in the large tax bill that passed largely, you know, entirely with Republican support. And they said now the individual mandate, there is no tax. The tax is zero dollars. And so now Judge O'Connor says there is no revenue stream. This is not operating at all like a tax. It has nothing to do with an individual's income. And so I think that that's a very you know, tough position for John Roberts to be in and the Supreme Court to be in if they want to uphold this law because it really goes to the center of his reasoning um, because it's a tax. So a lot of folks believe that uh, Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, saved the ACA, saved uh, President Obama's legacy last time by finding that one read to balance his opinion on in a, a Solomonic compromise. And now... He's ruled out two other common constitutional avenues for federal regulation. Now, what comes next? Well, is there a way, uh, Emily and you know, panel, feel free to jump in, for the law to be saved in part? Is it possible to sever the popular provisions that are polling at astronomical numbers, like pre-existing conditions, you can't be discriminated against for them, uh, guaranteed issue, community rating, you can't be charged more because of your medical history. Thoughts? So I think that there is a possibility that the individual mandate is severed from the rest of the law. So I think that, you know, most likely if the individual mandate is ruled unconstitutional, it seems likely that the individual mandate will go along with the pre-existing conditions protections. So guaranteed issue, community rating, the laws that require you to provide health insurance at the same price for individuals with pre-existing conditions. I think those are very much linked. I think it's likely that if the individual mandate goes, those will go too. But then that leaves the question of Medicaid expansion. It leaves the question of some of the other essential health benefits and some of the other regulations that are so intrinsic to the ACA. And I think it's possible that those go as well. I mean, in the initial opinion back in 2012, Justice Roberts didn't rule on severability because he didn't have to. He had ruled that the tax, uh, that the individual mandate was a tax. So it remains to be seen if they'll throw the entire bill out. Um, And if they do, that could come in June of 2020, just months before the presidential election. So I think that sets up, you know, a lot of potential disruption and a lot of conversations in D.C. amongst Republicans and Democrats and those in the middle as to sort of what comes next. We'll be getting the calendar invite out for the Brownstein panel July 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because I I think my opinion now, not as moderator, more likely than not, uh, it's in very real jeopardy. And the legislative history of the Affordable Care Act inextricably linked as a quid pro quo, the individual mandate and the monies raised by that with the mandate that insurance companies insure people differently than they ever had before. Um, and you know, kids until they're 26 can be on their parents' policies. Pre-existing conditions can't be discriminated against. Uh, no cap on lifetime benefits. Uh, community rating. Your medical history doesn't com- count against you. All of those things cost insurers money. And there's a ton in the legislative history, as well as the Chief Justice Roberts' opinion in 2012, that, hey, you know, these things go together. Um, maybe there's some chance that uh, those elements go out together because they're interwoven, but the Medicaid expansion, uh, which has turned out to be matching monies from the federal government because that was thrown out in 2012 as a mandate, uh, maybe that survives. Thoughts, Emily? Yeah, I think it's possible. I think that you know the 
idea that the individual mandate operates in a vacuum is is not something that anyone will acknowledge. I think everyone will acknowledge it's part of a larger scheme. And Judge O'Connor, in his opinion, goes through and says, you know, the bill itself, you know, in 13 different spaces, talks about how the individual mandate is linked to all of those things that you mentioned. So I think that there's a real possibility, and I think that members of Congress on both sides and the administration are all preparing for the possibility that part or all of this law gets thrown out. Um, but you also have to remember... You know, the ACA has been the law of the land for over a decade, or a little under a decade. Um, and the Trump administration now has actually embraced parts of the ACA for its own agenda. So, for example, in the ACA, they have 1332 waivers, which are essentially waivers that allow states to innovate and waive certain ACA provisions that they think are too burdensome for the state. And that's been a central focus for the administration to try to get states to apply for these waivers. And they've set up, you know, eight or nine states have set up five-year waivers. And that sort of would disrupt a lot of the conservative agenda that the Trump administration is pushing. So, you know, even though this is something that the Republican Party has been asking for and wanting for a long time, the overturning of the ACA in its entirety, um, it may turn out not to be the best thing. I'll refrain from using the analogy of the dog that finally catches right. the car and doesn't yeah. know what. Oh, wait, I just used the analogy. <laughs> so we'll pivot to our state experts, uh, Mike and Sarah. If, in fact, the ACA is thrown out, and let's say for the moment, we'll come back to this, D.C. is in a stalemate, uh, which they certainly would seem to be at the moment. The states are perfect laboratories for what might come next, what could be done to mitigate uh, health care costs. So, Sarah, Mike, talk to us a little bit about the session gone by and what came of that, of that and if that offers any promise for us. Well, sure. Let me get started. Um, I don't think that the state, uh, that Governor Polis or the uh, new majority in the legislature is waiting for a decision on the ACA. I think they moved ahead forward this year with some very aggressive uh, legislation. I think the tone of the approach to health care this year was set by the governor when uh, one of his first acts on taking office was to establish, and I never get this name quite right, but to establish a uh, department of uh, saving people money on health care. That's actually the name of it. <laughs> and that's how it shows up in the budget as well, Department of Saving People Money on Health Care. And I think that sort of uh, signaled exactly how aggressive the governor's office and a uh, uh, newly elected majority uh, uh, was going to be on health care. And we saw that. Do you want to... Yeah, you know, I think, you know, Mike's exactly right. You know, we, the state really did not wait to act. And in addition to setting up uh, that Office of Saving People Money on Healthcare, which is headed up by the Lieutenant Governor, uh, the governor rolled out several, a, really a roadmap to getting there. And that included um, items like uh, creating a reinsurance program, um, creating a, a pathway forward for a state option. Uh, for kind of a Medicare for all in Colorado, uh, as well as um, uh, hospital transparency and uh, prescription, importing prescription drugs from Canada. And we saw all four of those uh, bills pass in Colorado, in addition to several other things, including um, caps on out-of-pocket health care and uh, caps on out-of-network reimbursements as well. Yeah, I want to spend some time talking about the out-of-network bill because it was one of the major uh, and most contentious bills of the session. But I don't want to get ahead of myself, Mike. I mean, if I... Please. Okay. Um, 
Uh, Mike can be his own moderator. The um, we uh, and to be to be totally honest, so that you can sort of see the perspective from which Sarah and I look at this, we were engaged by a number of uh, provider groups to uh, step into the out of network or surprise billing, is what it was uh, called, surprise billing legislation. We were uh, we stepped into this in the middle of the session and immediately learned that we were very very late to the game. Um, because this is a subject, surprise billing has been around for a number of years. It was actually a Republican senator from uh, El Paso County, Bob Gardner, a very, very bright, very competent uh, uh, state legislator. He's in the Senate now, was in the House for many years. Uh, and he had been trying to deal with surprise billing uh, for about four or five years and never had any luck, largely because the House was controlled by the Democrats and the, the Senate was controlled by the Republicans. And he was never able to sort of uh, find enough common ground between those two chambers to pass something. Well, a couple of things happened. The, the carriers, and I, I don't mean if I'm going to offend anyone in the room, please come right back at me, you know. Um, but the carriers uh, saw uh, that this had been a subject to uh, discuss for a long time. They know that surprise billing, no one favored excessive surprise billing. No one favored it. And a lot of legislators on both sides of the aisles had personal experiences to relate. And there are some real, you know, really horror stories about surprise bills that people had received. Family members of legislators received these bills. So they knew it was a popular subject to undertake. They went to the consumer groups. I'm sure many people in the room are familiar with CCHI, Colorado Consumer Health Initiative, um, which is, represents consumers. Uh, and they started to talk about, well, what can they do and where was the common ground between those two players in the field and they worked out some things, realizing that they were going to have to deal with the providers and the healthcare facilities who were not at the table early in those discussions. And then we had an election. And the Democrats, which had not been in control in the state Senate, took over control of the state Senate. There were significant elections in resulting in leadership changes throughout the Colorado <coughs> legislature. Of, and uh, folks were elected who were very sympathetic and very much aligned with consumer interests. So there was that, that, uh, that coalition that had been built. And, and, out, and actually, there were two surprise billing uh, pieces of legislation that were dropped um, and, and filed. Um, and ultimately, they were combined into a single piece of legislation um, that passed. And it passed, and I'll go into some of the details. I don't mean to monopolize, Mike. but. Uh, uh, it passed with about four no votes through the entire process. I mean, it was very popular. The, the, the hearing rooms were filled with doctors, various practice groups, uh, and they had no impact whatsoever. Um, the, uh, the insurance companies came in and told stories, and people came in and related horror stories, and that's all people heard. The discussions got down to two uh, primary uh, areas. One was, okay, how do we stop surprise billing, out-of-network billing. And the other one, the other subject which we were involved in later was to figure out a way to deal with inadequate reimbursements in the event some circumstances uh, suggested that there should be a greater reimbursement. The benchmarks uh, were discussed, and there is no other way to put it. It was price-fixing. Um, there's no other way, there's just no other way to describe it. An out-of-network an out facility let me make sure I get this uh, exactly correct here. Um, if an, uh, an out-of-network facility uh, presents a, uh, a bill for reimbursement to a carrier, 
they can get the greater of 105% of the carrier's median in-network rate of reimbursement or the median in-network rate of reimbursement for the same service provided in the same geographic uh, area. That's it. No more. Um, and th those are uh, the providers and the facilities. I thought that the hospitals, the, the facilities, settled early quickly, and that's what they ended up with. The providers, we, we fought a little bit harder and uh, went through a number of gyrations on what the out-of-network reimbursement rate would be, and it ultimately turned out to be the greater of 110% of the carrier's median in-network rate of reimbursement for that service in the same geographic area, or the 60th percentile of the in-network rate as determined by the all-payer claims database. If you're familiar with that, Colorado has the all-payer claims database. That's the 60th percentile, which is likely to be the greater of in that case. But you figure it this way, that is that at least 40% of in-network rates are always going to be greater than any out-of-network reimbursement. So what we did, and I'll start to shorten this up, Mike, what we did is we, we worked to provide an arbitration provision. Um, and, and I can honestly say this, and Sarah, please slap me if I'm out of line here. There were probably about three or four legislators who understood what this was all about. Um, the uh, arbitration provision can be triggered if the provider feels that given the circumstances of the particular episode, that the reimbursement rate that I just read to you is inadequate uh, based upon anything, based upon anything, they can trigger a, an arbitration provision. It's baseball-style arbitra baseball arbitration. Simultaneously, the provider and the carrier submit their final best offer and their argument. And then the arbitrator, and I'm leaving out a lot of the details here, the arbitrator gets to pick one, doesn't get to split the baby, doesn't get to uh, find common ground. He picks one or the other. Now that, first of all, provides, at least from the provider's perspective, an opportunity to continue to fight if the, first, the circumstances dictate that something other than the benchmark amounts uh, are going to be paid. But probably most importantly is that it still allows, it still gives the providers some leverage in the negotiation of their in-network provider agreements. Because without an ability to contest, without an ability to suggest that that they should get a price other than what's dictated in the formula in the statute, why would a carrier negotiate at all? Here's the price that we pay in network, and if you don't like that, here's what we're going to pay you out of network. So from the provider's perspective, the arbitration provision that we were able to get into the legislation very late in the session is at least some saving grace given the fact that, uh, that clearly this was designed, first of all, to prevent surprise billing, but also, and I'm going to let you talk about this, the feeling that this was an, a vehicle to reduce overall health care costs. Yeah, you know, there's really something for every legislator in this bill, something for all of them to love. Whereas we've seen the healthcare debate at the federal level is really very partisan. This was a really bipartisan issue. I mean, as Mike said, there were only a handful of no votes the entire process. And Republican or Democrat, from a state legislative perspective, it was so important for legislators to be able to go back to their constituents and say, 
I did something for you with respect to your health care costs. And this was a bill that they were able to get on board with. Um, as Mike said, you know, this idea really was uh, the genesis of it and the champion for the last several years has been a Republican. Um, we saw very interestingly with the consumer groups coming aboard and that, that alliance with the Democrats, we also saw the very young and progressive uh, section of our Democratic caucus jump aboard this who really felt that, I mean, frankly, I don't really know another way to put it, but that doctors just make too much money. Just this perception that uh, people are just making too much money off of patients in the system. And it's really, you know, as we all know, it's the providers who tend to get squeezed. But um, they, you know, there really was that sentiment and that feeling. And we also saw, in addition to this, uh, this cap on reimbursement costs, we saw a similar bill where I think it's one of the first times we've seen it, which was a cap on out-of-pocket costs for patients for their insulin and capped it at $100 a month. So I, I think there's pr more uh, that we're going to see in the next three to seven years in this regard. I will mention, especially with respect to that comment about doctors um, making too much money in this space, we had a similar bill in the home health care space where um, – uh, the Medicaid money that comes in for reimbursements on home health care, there is a bill that now requires that $12.41 of those reimbursements be paid, that workers be paid $12.41 um, per hour. That bill started out as the requirement was going to be that 77% of the Medicaid reimbursement money go to worker wages. And so we're seeing the Democrats take in these health care issues to help advance their agendas around um, social equality and workers' rights as well. So a couple of uh, observations. The whole notion of surprise billing is now gathering steam in Washington as well. And so the whole notion of states as uh, bellwethers for federal, uh, same concept where it's easy to demonize. Both sides can't agree on what time it is in Washington, but they can agree that somebody's making too much money out there and it's not fair to you to get a surprise bill. Uh, similarly, pharmaceutical industry uh, appears to have a bit of a bullseye from both sides of the aisle federally. Um, Mike and Sarah, talk a little bit about the legislation, Canadian imports. Uh, but before you do that, I'll, I'll give the backdrop. Today's Denver Post, two or three pages in, and I'm one of the few people under 50 that still gets you know, an actual newspaper. <laughs> I'm old school like that, but... Uh, Colorado joins lawsuit against generic drug makers. And the phrase price fixing was used by Mike Feely in a wholly different context of the legislative session, uh, but accusations of price fixing uh, against generics. And generics are supposed to be um, the savers of money for the consumer. Um, so I, I think the pharma industry, as this news spreads, is going to have an even larger bullseye on it. Uh, talk a little bit about what came out of our session. Yeah, well, I mentioned the bill that caps the out-of-pocket costs for insulin at $100. Um, but, of course, one of the hallmarks of Governor Polis's roadmap towards saving people money on health care was passing a bill that would allow for the importation of prescription drugs from Canada. This requires federal approval and authorization. And uh, if you've been following President Trump's tweets, this is something that he likes uh, I think it remains to be seen whether or not Governor Polis can really take on the pharmaceutical lobby and its power. Well, it also requires uh, – the, the Colorado legislation requires a federal waiver as yeah. well to be able to do this. Um, 
so we'll see how that goes. I think an interesting question, particularly on the out-of-network, is, and Emily and I were, Emily, Sarah, and I were talking about this a little earlier today. What's happening in the states, and we are not the only state to be addressing surprise billing or out-of-network billing, is all over the board, and that's sort of impeding the federal thinking about what they might be able to do. I also think we're going to run into preemption questions. And, you know, will the federal government step in? Every health insurer, every carrier has to register and obtain a state license to operate within the state. Uh, and I think it's going to raise a pretty a hornet's nest of preemption questions for if they're even able to work through some of the, uh, some of the, um, the, the, the different approaches that the states, states use. You know, we're supposed to, as you said earlier, Mike, the states are the laboratory for this. Sometimes those experiments can go awry, you know. Um, Good analogy. So just because I, I try to adhere to our rule of Warren Buffett's rule on plain English disclosure and securities documents. So preemption, if you're not a, a con law uh, scholar, preemption is where federal law preempts state law. And very important in these examples where um, we spent an entire session on these topics, and yet Washington, D.C. may get their act together and come over the top, and they will preempt that space. And it will move what Super we have done. Yeah. So... Um, I think all of these laboratories are fun unless and until the federal government comes over the top and supersedes what's been done. So, Emily, I know we were having a conversation preparing for this in terms of the ability of Congress to get on the same page with big ideas, a grand bipartisan bargain. Um, what would you give odds on that? So, you know, I think that surprise billing is actually one of the two bills that will pass in a, in a bipartisan manner, this, this Congress. You know, President Trump just had a big Rose Garden ceremony on Thursday with Secretary Azar and congressional leaders um, from all of the committees. Mitch McConnell was there, Speaker Pelosi was there, and they all talked about how concerned they are about surprise billing and they want to come together on that. You know, that said, there are a lot of issues with preemption, and you know, half of the states have already acted in this space and have either arbitration rules or they pay a percentage of Medicare or they use a geographic index to determine the prices for out-of-network bills. So it will be a challenge, but I do believe that there's enough bipartisan consensus that they will do something. I think the other area, you know, to um, their point earlier is uh, drug pricing legislation. I think that Congress will do something, but I think, you know, it'll be modest. I think they've marked up in the House a couple bills related to transparency, related to better access to generic drugs, um, but I don't think they're going to come up with a big drug pricing bargain uh, that addresses negotiation in Medicare, for example. That's something that there have been a lot of conversations between Speaker Pelosi's office and her head um, health policy expert and the White House on. Um, but I was in a meeting with Mitch McConnell last week, and he said, you know, we're going to do some small ball things on health care. We're going to do surprise billing. We're going to do some small ball stuff on drug pricing. So I don't think that a grand bargain is going to come down the pipeline anytime soon. Wait, 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 wait a second. All right. So small ball? That's all we get is small yeah. ball. So well, if you're out on the campaign trail, you attend a rally, or maybe you're like me, watch it on MSNBC in the morning, uh, there are big promises being made. E expectations are being elevated sky high on both sides. So, you know, on the one side we hear about you know, the Republican Party is going to be the party of health care. Um, and that was the announcement when this uh, Texas case uh, got the weight of the DOJ behind it. On the other side, we hear about Medicare for all. Um, 
What's the ability to get either of these initiatives through, just so we all level set on expectations and, and civics 101? Sure. You know, I think when you think about the House, it's very fragmented. You have Democrats and Republicans, but you also have the far-left progressives and you have the far-right Freedom Caucus. And so getting everybody in the House to agree on something is a monumental task. And so the Freedom Caucus and the far-left progressives aren't going to agree on anything. So you're left with the folks sort of in the middle. But compromise and bipartisanship is not exactly popular right now. So it's, it's going to be really difficult to get anything through. And I think you know drug pricing and surprise billing are sort of off-the-shelf things most folks can agree on. But again, something big like negotiation or even legislation on importation, I don't think they're going to get there. Wow, well, that's disheartening. Nonetheless, uh, I'm going to turn it over to Daryl Landall, who, like Mr. Smith, goes to Washington. Uh, Daryl, if you were given the opportunity with a whiteboard uh, and your experiences the last decade and well beyond in healthcare, um, what kind of opportunities do we have that people, even on this panel so far, we haven't even talked about accountable care organizations, bundling, value based payments? that are market-oriented and could drive some value. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Um, you know, it, it's really difficult trying to think of one system that's going to address everything. Um, you know, Mike mentioned about just the disarray of, our, um, you know, the wide variety of out-of-network billing solutions that there are. And every state has their regulatory schemes addressing any number of things that are impacting, you know, healthcare delivery and healthcare costs. Uh, you know, corporate practice of medicine restrictions and insurance licensing restrictions that impact providers in the sense of, you know, when you're trying to implement value-based payment arrangements, um, you know, that are designed to, you know, reduce costs and improve um, efficiencies and improve outcomes, you know, that can limit what a provider can do, um, uh, you know, in, in terms of taking financial risk and really being invested in those outcomes. Um, you know, other things like, you know, fraud and abuse restrictions that states have, you know, often they'll somewhat parallel federal fraud and abuse res uh, restrictions like the Stark Law and a kickback statute, but don't necessarily um, keep up with, you know, the exceptions and safe harbors and those kind of things that are at the federal level that allow you to have certain arrangements, um, you know, that might get into more integrated care and value-based payment. Um, I think, you know, if I could go to Washington and do something and, you know, you called me out on sort of where I sit, sort of goes, in, you know, it's in, uh, just relative to me. I mean, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, you know, a government solution of, you know, restricting in some way of having some sort of program where, you know, you talked about preemption, state laws being preempted when you have certain kinds of programs in place. Um, you know, one, again, it's really difficult for providers to be able to put in the resource at a state level addressing the different restrictions that might be in place on what they can do with, you know, value-based payment. Um, and then when you do have organizations that do have the bandwidth and resource, um, you know, that want to, maybe maybe they develop a great program that works in one state, you go to another state and, it, you know, you pr pretty much start all over because you're addressing, you know, state-level solutions. Um, again, as much as it's, you know, you know, sometimes it's difficult to say we need a federal solution, I think in that way, I really do think we need some level of preemption when it comes to insurance licensing, you know, um, I don't know if you can get there with corporate practice and medicine restrictions, but really it's much more, if not a federal solution, it's states looking at, um, you know, things that, you know, in my opinion, you know, might be vestiges of, you know, yesteryear, 
things that are on the book that are really, really limiting um, the way providers and healthcare organizations that may not be providers can really come in and implement uh, you know, really robust population health, really robust value-based payment mechanisms, putting providers at financial risk, having, you know, care coordination, you know, better, you know, uh, uh, you know clinical protocols that will ultimately drive costs down and, you know, um, you know improve outcomes in a, uh, uh, for patients. So uh, just in simplest terms, an accountable care organization takes a population, how many people, 1,000 people, 10,000 people, will get reimbursed a set amount of money for each live in that population. And there are demographic adjusters and whatnot. That all gets hotly debated. Um, and that turns on its head our current fee-for-service model, um, where procedures performed, the more procedures you perform, the more pay you get. So just framing up the accountable care organization, that's one value-based payment Structure. Now, Daryl was lamenting without taking it head on. So now we're going to take it head on. Uh, some vestiges of the past, air quotes, um, perhaps the Stark Law. And some of you approached me uh, before we got started this evening what's going to happen with Stark? What's going on in DC with Stark? It's been rumored to be uh, on the chopping block for some time. So, uh, Daryl, do you want to comment on Stark? And then maybe, Emily, you can comment on uh, your prognosis on its uh, relative. Demise or lack thereof? I mean, personal opinion, I don't think the Stark Law is going anywhere. I think what you'll see is a, you know, continuation of, you know, uh, CMS right now, and you can talk much more than I can about it, but is, you know, looking at additional exceptions to um, the Stark Law that would address value-based payment, um, you know, integrated care. Um, I think that's probably the best that we could hope for is, you know, perhaps Congress, you know, statutorily putting in, you know, additional restrictions on what the Stark Law covers, you know, putting in, you know, more authorization for exceptions. But I don't, I don't think it's going away. So that, that would look like if you're inside the tent, the ACO tent, you, you get an exemption, but the overall Stark Law not in any jeopardy. Yeah, I mean, it, just to address that, the ACO part, I mean, Stark Law obviously is not just limited to uh, accountable care organizations. There's actually some exceptions specific to Medicare ACOs, you know, how you can participate in those. Um, it actually makes it easier than participating on a fee-for-service basis and having, you know, arrangements with providers and, you know, um, with other providers, uh, you know, that fall afoul of the Stark Law. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that there is tremendous interest at CMS and HHS more broadly, and the Deputy Secretary has spoken about this, and a lot of the top folks at CMS have made this part of their platform is sort of trying to introduce more exceptions and more uh, changes to Stark. And this is actually something that Congress has been looking at as well. Um, but it's very difficult, as we discussed before, to pass a law right now. And so they're really leaning on the agencies to sort of revise their guidance and, and look at the law in a more flexible way. I think, you know, to my earlier point, too, on drug pricing, I think that just because, you know, Congress can't act, that doesn't mean that the agencies won't be acting. And I think you'll see, you know, similarly, a lot of action on drug pricing through the regulatory process. And there's a tremendous amount of pressure for HHS to accomplish things through regulations like Stark. Um, there's the, the rebate rule. They recently put out a law on direct-to-consumer advertising requiring pharmaceutical manufacturers to publish the list price of all of their drugs in their advertisements. So they have a lot of ability to really affect change in the drug pricing space through the regulatory process um, and through Stark and, and others as well. 
Yeah, and I think even on the at the state level, even though we've seen, um, you know, even though we saw a tremendous set of legislation this year, and the legislature being controlled by the Democrats is certainly poised to act over the next three years. We also have seen a delegation to our executive branch. And Mike, do you want to talk a little bit about what that yeah. looks like in the state option bill that passed? Right. Sarah mentioned the state option bill a little earlier, and I was just reaching for it. And, and, and Mike, to your point, there's specific directions that the legislature gave this, what is it called, Sarah? The, the Office of Saving People Money on Healthcare. Okay, that group. <laughs> that group there. Um, uh, they're given specific direction as to what to look at. And one of the specific uh, directions, Mike, is um, whether the state option plan should be a fully at risk, fully at risk, managed care, fee for service, or accountable care collaborative plan, or a combination thereof. That's interesting. Um, but the way this statute works, I think, sort of suggests exactly how aggressive this new administration is going to be. Because the rest of the bill, if you look at the, 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 this office, is to come up with a plan, notify certain committees in the legislature, and at the same time then go seek any necessary waivers from the feds. It's cooked. And basically it does not go back to the legislature for any new legislation or any deliberation or consideration of what this committee came up with. It's just going to go into place and without any, any further legislative action. It, you know, Sarah and I, when we started to notice this, we said, this is sort of typical. I think it happens in Washington uh, mm -hmm. all the time, too. Sure, sure. Um, yeah. Where the legislature is ceding its constitutional authority to the executive branch. And this is a, a subject that is near and dear to all of us and could have an immediate impact on how we all obtain our health care or provide health care for, for our, our patients. So I couldn't agree more. And if it feels a little disconcerting, uh, and some of you said, am I, I going to sleep a little bit less after this panel? Probably. I certainly did after preparing over the weekend. Uh, it feels a little disconcerting to have the system that everyone got used to, calibrated toward, did deals around for the last decade, is in serious legal jeopardy with the Supreme Court. And then our democracy is, my opinion, not in position to pivot should that ruling be handed down. Um, and it's not like the Supreme Court says, oh, yeah, no worries, so we'll get around to implementing that in two years. It's either constitutional or it's not. Um, we will all have to react to that in the healthcare industry and how we <coughs> all participate in 18% of the GDP through healthcare. Um, what comes next if it's a stalemate, which it would be as we sit today, with divided government. What if, in 2020, one party or the other sweeps total control? And so how Affordable Care Act got passed in the first place, it took 60 votes in the United States Senate. One party or the other takes total control. What does their dream solution look like, each side? And I'm going to say ahead of time, I'm going to be the truth squad. So Emily, dream scenario for the GOP. Well, that's an excellent question, and I don't know that they know what the dream scenario is, uh, but I will do my best. So if you look at the president's budget, which is the document that the Trump administration releases every spring and sort of lays out their wish list for Congress, here are all the things we want you to pass into law, um, they have something in there called the Graham-Cassidy Plan, and that is essentially an ACA replacement that they tried to vote on during the repeal and replace battle in 2017. 
Um, and that would essentially give states big block grants to do whatever they want with those funds. And so instead of subsidies through a state or federal exchange, which is the current system, or instead of Medicaid expansion to um, the new expansion population, um, they would say, we will give states a certain amount of dollars, and the state can set up a health savings account for its citizens, the state can set up a reinsurance program, the state can give grants, the state can give Every citizen, you know, split it up amongst people who need health insurance. They can do whatever they want with it. Um, and, and there's a lot of questions about that plan, which I think is part of the reason it didn't go anywhere initially in, in 2017. But, you know, how much would you give each of the states? Are there any limits? Would it protect individuals with pre-existing conditions, which was a big, you know, concern from the Democrats when that plan was being discussed? But I think ultimately, you know, you would see a system where states retain more of the control, where the federal government, you know, as a traditional conservative policy, the federal government has less control over individuals' health care. Um, and, you know, you saw after the announcement in March, everyone in Congress was sort of surprised, okay, we're, we're not defending this. We're going to say that the ACA should be overturned in its entirety. And President Trump said Republicans are going to be the party of health care. And he sent all of his top lieutenants out to Camp David a month later, the HHS secretary, CMS administrator, Seema Verma, a bunch of folks from the White House, Mick Mulvaney, and they're all at Camp David sort of saying, okay, what's our plan going to be? And so I think it will resemble something similar to what's in the president's budget, but they're going to have to address the issue of pre-existing conditions and protections for those with pre-existing conditions because, you know, that's what people vote on. That's a very top issue, and that's part of the reason I think that Republicans lost the House um, in the midterm elections. So it remains to be seen the exact parameters, but I think it'll revolve around state control. So there's no free lunch. Right, for either right. party in their dream scenario. So uh, for the GOP to ratchet down overall spending, federal spending on health care and distribute more power to the states, uh, the 2017 proposal, the American Health Care Act, so confusingly the ACHA, uh, yes. Obama didn't have a trademark lawyer, <laughs> a little too confusingly similar for my taste, the uh, GOP proposed capping the, the block grant phrase you hear a lot. So that caps the amount going to states for Medicaid. Uh, and with that cap, going forward, it's like, okay, vaya con Dios. You know, good luck with that. You're on your own. Yeah. And we're going to maybe negotiate that cap. And after that, you are at risk. You blow through that cap, you're going to be talking to your you know, state legislature. Um, and the net effect of that was uh, reducing health care for 11 million low-income people was a statistical projection. I'm not making that up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, trade-offs inherent in both sides' dream scenario. Um, on the Democratic side, I mean, anybody on the panel, we have a chorus from the audience, what their dream scenario is. is Bernie, Medicare for all, ring a bell. Wait, I think the Democrats, is that the Republican side over there? <laughs> the, the, the Democratic side? Um, I, I think the Democrats you. actually have two dreams, depending on which side of the Democratic Party you sit on. There clearly is the uh, single-payer, the Bernie group. There, there's a number of them in the Colorado Democratic caucuses that support that. That's, that's their dream. They always run into the problem of actually putting it down on paper and having people look at some of the details. That's where it's really great to talk about on the campaign trail, but you know the, the, the proof is always a little more difficult. And then there's the more, uh, I, probably I would 
at least given the recent polling numbers I put in the Joe Biden camp right now, and that is the Affordable Care Act as it was passed. Um, um, that was that was sort of what the, it was the dream for the Democrats, and um, th- they pushed it as far as they thought they could at the time. And of course, the first thing when the Republicans took control, the first thing they did is the, they dealt with the mandated coverage there, which was an underpinning on how we're going to fund the balance of the keeping your kid on 26 years, pre-existing conditions, uh, and the like. And so I think that the the ACA was the dream, but there certainly is probably uh, increasing uh, a single-payer dream among many Democrats. Maybe it's become a bit of a litmus test. Um, And just to make sure that both sides are held to account, uh, I reviewed a RAND Corporation study over the weekend that estimated the federal spending on health care currently at little over a trillion dollars. And under Medicare for All, it would leap to three and a half trillion dollars, so a 221 percent increase. Now, the overall spend in the United States of America on health care would only be slightly more, but those monies would shift from employer-based and some private pay and some out-of-pocket to the government paying. And you know, philosophical discussions about you know, who's the better allocator of resources, that kind of thing. Um, and the old, you know, if you like your health care, you get to keep your health care promise. Um, so a Democrat I spoke to in this room before we got started said it's just too much, too fast to go right to Medicare for all. Mike, your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think uh, even Democrats that ultimately support it feel moving too fast is uh, really dangerous and uh, mistakes will be made. So uh, we'll jump into the rest of our poll questions and uh, the panel is more than welcome to comment as we go here or jump in and then we're going to have Q&A at the end. Uh, So should insurance companies be barred from imposing lifetime benefit caps and denying coverage for pre-existing conditions and be required to cover children until age 26? I think uh, we have consensus that uh, these protections should remain in place. We're up to 27 yeses and only nine noes. And, uh, and, so and Emily, isn't that part of the concern that the Republicans at the federal level have? These are very popular ideas. Absolutely. And you'll even see Republicans in the House saying, you know, we want to keep these protections. We want to make sure kids can stay on insurance until they're 26. So you'll even see Republicans, even, you know, some of the most conservative Republicans in the Freedom Caucus um, saying we we agree with these principles in the ACA. And that's part of the reason there's you know growing concern if the ACA is overturned in its entirety, you know, where do these popular provisions go and who's going to get blamed for that? And if the Supreme Court does act, you know, summer of 2020, and we're still in a political stalemate, those provisions are gone. They'll be gone and uh, they'll be held to pay with the electorate and all kinds of finger pointing and blame gaming. Uh, so we're on to our next question. Would your answer to the prior question change if retaining those items required reinstating the tax penalty for failing to maintain minimum essential coverage or raising taxes. I'm very proud of this room. You guys are making me proud tonight. I mean, you, you guys are sticking to your guns. You're willing to pay for what you want, and there is no free lunch. Very proud of you guys. Um, commentary from the panel. I, I think this is a highly educated uh, health care room. I'm not just saying that. Um, 
If I were on the Supreme Court, this is my favorite. I loved constitutional law back in the day. If I were on the Supreme Court, there's a longer run-up to this question, but it doesn't fit on the slide. So I'll read it to you, and you have it in front of you. Trump administration has joined a challenge to the ACA, asserting the entire law should be thrown out, given it was previously upheld based on Congress having the power to tax. And the tax penalty uh, for failing to maintain minimum essential coverage was eliminated with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act last year. If I were on the Supreme Court as a matter of constitutional law and not necessarily my personal policy preference, justices of the Supreme Court cast your votes. I would A, strike down the ACA in its entirety. B, preserve the ACA as is. C, sever the law only invalidating the individual mandate while leaving intact the remaining provisions like the Medicaid expansion and prohibition on denying coverage for pre-existing conditions. Justices, all rise. <laughs> all right, this is, this is tough. Wow. This is a three-way horse race. You're, you're hearing those of you listening on the podcast. The, the crowd is reacting to the horse race. I'm going to call it a dead heat between strike down the ACA in its entirety or sever. Um, 13 apiece for those two. With nine, nine uh, dyed-in-the-wool Obama uh, relatives saying, preserve it exactly as is. So uh, that is most impressive. This one was fun. Moving on to, uh, in the event the Supreme Court invalidates the ACA in its entirety, Congress should. Now pretend that word should is underlined. Congress should... A, strike a bipartisan grand compromise with a blend of public support for those in need and market-oriented solutions... B, implement a Medicare for all single-payer system. C, implement the 2017 GOP proposals or something similar with more power to the states and emphasis on health savings accounts. D, do nothing, stalemate. (laughs) Now, this is what they should do. We got another question coming here. Okay, I'm prepared to call this one. This is not even close. Uh, We've got 24 and counting for... Uh, strike a bipartisan grand compromise. Um, you all are the silent majority. I mean, this is what that, that term refers to. Uh, the country is not all of us in our separate camps. Some of us want good government that functions, and if that's bipartisan, so be it. We will see if we get that. Um, and I have to note that Medicare for All did get eight votes, so we don't want to slight anybody. Did quite well there. Now, what will actually happen? Same question, but what will actually happen? <laughs> <laughs> Laughter from the audience? <laughs> this is a staggering result. My goodness. <laughs> the lack of faith. Why are we here? <laughs> <laughs> You know, as Darth Vader said at one point in Star Wars, your lack of faith disturbs me. There is no faith in this room. There is not one vote for anything but do nothing or stalemate. All right. Well, um, we'll, we'll see if we can all move the needle on that, but every single vote went for do nothing. Oh, my, my bad. There's a true believer in the grand compromise. <laughs> Whoever that person is, that, that is the Mr. or Miss Smith goes to Washington right there, Jimmy Stewart. The best way to reduce health care spending, mergers, partnerships, and consolidation in the health care industry. B, 
B, accountable care organizations and integrated care systems and or bundled payments, some of what Daryl talked about. C, allowing the sale of insurance across state lines. D, information technology. E, innovation through new drugs and or new medical devices. I should have had yeah, that one in there. Yeah. Someone called out all the above. But, you know, this is a preference poll. And, like, we lawyers, we had to take the ethics exam, and you had to pick the most correct answer. There were two correct answers for every question. That was fun. <laughs> we are in a, uh, about a four-way stalemate between the first four with uh, only one person believing in pharma. Uh, that narrow, narrow edge to uh, accountable care organizations and bundled payments. So, next up, repealing health care regulations like Stark to promote alternatives to fee-for-service medicine, like accountable care organizations, bundling, and integrated care systems. A, will enable alternatives to fee-for-service medicine to thrive. B, thrive might be a strong term. Why don't we just say enable? Uh, B would be unnecessary as only limited waivers should be granted on a case-by-case basis. C would be a terrible idea. Healthcare regulations exist for good reason. We, we have uh, a pretty even split between the regulatory cops, uh, they'll be watching you, and uh, the free market enablers. Uh, so alternatives uh, to fee-for-service, being enabled to thrive, Came in at 13. Uh, terrible idea. Regulations exist for good reason. 13. It, it's close. Uh, so uh, reflecting the split in America with five people saying unnecessary limited waivers would do just fine. Second to last question. Mergers, partnerships, and consolidation in the healthcare industry, A, are an important tool to drive efficiencies, including better patient outcomes at lower costs. B, pose antitrust and other concerns. Quality and patient choice may suffer. C, are unnecessary to contain costs. Efficiencies can be obtained through other means. D, are a passing fad. I remember that part where I said this is an unscientific poll. And I think we've got a pretty even split between mergers. Well, yeah, we've got a lot of antitrust cops in the room. We have some antitrust concerns. We're up around 17 uh, for pose antitrust concerns with 13 uh, saying mergers are an important tool to drive efficiencies. Uh, and I, as a M&A lawyer, I'll say we can do both. Right? We can do mergers that are <laughs> compliant. So I'd be out of a job if I said otherwise. <laughs> Our last question of the evening, and then we're open uh, up for Q&A from the floor. High drug prices represent A, fair return on investment for companies making substantial investments in drugs that enhance quality of life. B, price gouging that should be curbed through legislative action restricting prices. C, the free market, but one that should be challenged by permitting lower-priced imports. Well, there are uh, very few sympathizers out there for the, the poor pharmaceutical companies getting a return on their investment. This is being debated on the Hill as we speak. Uh, fun stuff. Uh, Fifteen of you believe price gouging is ongoing and needs to be curbed through price caps. 16 of you say the free market ought to reign, but with competition from abroad. Uh, I think reflecting you know, a lot of the sentiments out there in the country. So questions from the audience. And knowing that we are going to hang out, there's food, there's drink. If you have a very specific question, you know, please buttonhole the right person after. 
But if you've got a, a question for the panel, fire away. Ron. So the question, and I can't possibly capture all of that, Ron, but the question essentially is the, the pharmaceutical benefit managers acting as the middle person, uh, are they taking too much? Yes. Yeah, so to you know, address the question of you know, are PBMs you know, getting a lot of attention from Congress and from the administration, I would say yes. So two or three years ago, nobody knew what a PBM was. It was sort of obscure by design, right? Um, pharmaceutical benefit managers, Hill staff didn't know, members didn't know. And now you, not a week goes by in D.C. where there's not a hearing on drug pricing where either a PBM is testifying or they're asking questions about the role of PBMs. Um, just last week, there was a hearing before the Energy and Commerce Committee, and they have jurisdiction over health care matters in the House. And they had PBMs testifying on the panel, and the hearing was about the drug supply chain. So it was about what do you do versus what the, the pharmaceutical manufacturers do versus what the pharmacists do, trying to get a better sense of what is the role of PBMs. On the administration side, HHS has passed um, or proposed, I'm sorry, a regulation that would actually eliminate some of those rebates in Medicare. So they would say, you're not allowed to negotiate the way that PBMs currently negotiate for drug prices. And they've proposed to eliminate some of those rebates. And so actually the comment period is ongoing. Um, it remains to be seen whether they'll finalize that rule. But you, you're absolutely right. I think that a lot of folks are starting to recognize the role that PBMs play as the middleman between you know, the consumer and the manufacturer. And is that a necessary role? Is there a better way to you know, address the true price of something rather than allowing middlemen to sort of administer these programs and potentially take cuts um, and incentivize higher list prices. And so those are things that are constantly being considered in D.C. Um, and there was actually a bill that passed through the House recently that would um, require manufacturers to publish the rebates that they negotiate with some of the PBMs to try to get more transparency into that system. So that's definitely a topic of discussion. So I think... Um just in, in the recent days uh, and weeks, there's been a ton of scrutiny also on the life of a patent, which is one of those things that when I went to law school, that's pretty much set in stone, 18 years. If you're an innovator, you're going to invest, and then you get to realize your profit and recoup your investment during those 18 years of exclusivity. Um, so just to play devil's advocate for the, the poor pharmaceutical industry, um, there are folks in Congress talking about taking that away or diminishing the number of years, et cetera. Um, there are a lot of investments being made on innovative drugs that are predicated on getting a return on investment. So I think all of these topics, you know, there's a bit of a push and pull, and we're hoping for innovation um, without you know, taking away the inspiration to invest. And, you know, to be fair to the PBMs, too, I feel like there are, you know, members of Congress that will defend them and say, you know, they actually do fulfill a very important role in administering programs and negotiating deals. And so, you know, maybe there's a middle ground here um, where we can sort of acknowledge their important role, but also make sure there's transparency in the process. And I think that's the direction that they're moving. So Sharon's going to come apart at the scenes if we don't call on her. <laughs> Sharon. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm going to be the cynic on this one, Emily, okay? Um, you know, here 2,000 miles from Washington, D.C., I think, you know, the, I think we all agree they're not going to do anything. 
Um, but, but Sharon, um, PBMs started out as group GPOs, group purchasing organizations, and it was at the time when managed care was coming into vogue. And they were looked at as how they were going to manage, you know, effectively manage a regimen of pharmaceuticals. What do we have now? Three PBMs left in the country? Um, they've been consolidated, and who owns them? The insurance companies. Exactly. I mean, and this has not been in the last two or three years, Emily. This has been over the last 15 years, I'd say. And Washington just seems to sit there and watch this consolidation, watch this uh, 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 morphing of the original purpose to provide uh, effective pharmaceutical management, case management, into this, you know, okay, now we're talking about kickbacks, and now we're talking about rebates, we're talking about this. Nothing ever gets done, and we've just seen uh, uh, just a constant consolidation of the industry. So that's just my two cents, okay? Um, we'll let you pen a letter to the DOJ okay. <laughs> about that. Uh, question, new topic. I think we hit PBMs pretty hard. So question was, uh, is there initiative to better educate patients as consumers and know better uh, what's coming at them? Um, I'll say from the state level, I think there is not. I think there is a real strong belief among state legislators, both from their personal experience and what they hear from constituents, that um, it's really the job of, it's not the job of consumers to figure out how to get educated to better navigate the system. The system is way too complicated. So we haven't heard that. I mean, it's different in the financial services space, for example. We hear a lot about consumer education in the healthcare space. I don't think I've ever heard of that. You know, from the federal perspective, I'm thinking of two specific initiatives, and I think that, um, you know, there's not a lot of emphasis on that, and there should be more. Um, I know through the Affordable Care Act, um, it provided grants to states to provide navigators for individuals. So with the new private insurance rules and the Medicaid expansion, states were provided with um, grants to organizations that would assist people when they came in to a doctor if they didn't have coverage, um, that they could sort of help them enroll into private coverage or into Medicaid. Um, and they existed, you know, at state fairs and, and other sort of places where they could reach consumers. And that's a program that's still ongoing, um, but I don't think it's funded at the same levels it was at the, at the beginning of the Affordable Care Act rollout. Um, one of the issues related to surprise billing, though, and where I think the federal legislation might end up, is a requirement, and this is a proposal, but it's a requirement that when individuals come in to the ER before they see a doctor that's not in their network, they're informed, this doctor is not in your network, this is not covered by your insurance, you're going to be charged, you know, however many dollars. And so that's one proposal that's being batted around, um, I think, to address that issue. Um, but I think that um, there should be more focus on that, and that's not been a top priority. So I'll be the free market-oriented idealist. Um, the accountable care organization, uh, once you put dollars on the line, all of a the sudden they're very interested in you maintaining your health, um, as opposed to under fee-for-service medicine. Uh, you go in, you get treated, you pay a bill. The ACO is motivated to keep you healthy 24-7, 365, because, you know, guess what? Whatever they spend less than the amount that has been negotiated for you for the year, that's profit. And so the good old-fashioned profit motive happens to align with doing the right thing, purely my opinion. Go ahead, sir. Uh, the gentleman's involved in um, uh, the development and support of the all-payer claims database. Uh, 
and um, what is the legislative feeling about the all-payer claims database? Are they getting what they need? And I, I can answer that two ways. Um, first is um, I think the folks in the legislature uh, feel significant ownership of the Colorado all-payer claims database. That's something that uh, came from the legislature, um, and they have great hope for it. Um, and uh, m most people that maybe that uh, their initial reaction is that it, it's, uh, it does good work, provides uh, the information that's necessary for them to make policy decisions. So there's an ownership interest, and it's pretty well respected among the members. Other folks have some problems with it, with holes in the data, and there are some national uh, competitors um, uh, th that, that some people feel more comfortable with. So um, I think... To answer your question directly, the legislators are pretty comfortable with it, but there are probably still some room for improvement in terms of the collection and the reporting um, to make it what it can ultimately be. Did that answer your question? Okay, thanks. So we're going to do one last question. Uh, gentleman on the far left. So the question is sort of what is the future of the social determinants of health? Is there legislation in that space? It, you know, what, as, as there are bipartisan squabbles sort of, how do we move the ball forward on social determinants? Because that's an area where there's a lot of cost savings on the table. And I think the area that folks are discussing this the most is in the Innovation Center. As you mentioned, you know, the Affordable Care Act created an Innovation Center within HHS that would allow that center to sort of waive a lot of statutes and regulations regarding how Medicare and Medicaid is paid for. And one thing that, you know, would impact and cost savings on social determinants is sort of more of those type of innovation waivers in Medicaid, for example. Most of the Innovation Center has focused on Medicare because that's the largest sort of spend. But I think that in the, you know, for Medicaid beneficiaries, looking at issues like housing and food security would provide for more savings. And I think that that's something that the administration is considering. You'll see you know, HHS Secretary Azar and Adam Bowler, who leads the Innovation Center, have spoken before about wanting more models in the Innovation Center that relate to social determinants. And on Thursday, actually, one of the House committees is doing a hearing on maternal mortality and how social determinants and racial disparities can be you know, a, a determinant for how mothers are cared for. And so I think that's becoming more of the conversation, but it's a tough issue to tackle. And I will say, too, if the ACA is overturned, the Innovation Center goes, too. So that's also part of the, the complex web here. So if you want to have even more stress eating, uh, I published two law review articles on healthcare transactional, and you're required to have the backdrop, and the backdrop is downright scary. We spend 18% of our GDP, and yet we get healthcare outcomes that are far inferior to our peer industrialized nations, far inferior. And so that is a tremendous, tragic lack of return on a lot of money invested and the impetus for this conversation. And I think... We all are, you know, trying to move the needle um, in ways that Washington is stalemated on. Um, to close on a, a depressing but important note, there's that. And then there's the slide that these are going to scroll through and we'll put back up of how the market's doing. And the overall stock market is outperforming the healthcare index by 16 percentage points. 16 points. 
Um, yeah, it, it, not updated for five minutes yeah, ago, exactly. Benenson, but we'll, we'll, we'll make sure and spend firm money on that technology. Um, so I'm going to edit that for the podcast. Uh, people are, uh, the comment is that the market for healthcare stocks is tanking because of a lot of ruminating about Medicare for all. Um, and, and there's a colorful term for the reaction. But uh, yes, that, that's correct in part. Uh, the second factor is, is what was also talked about on this panel of uh, pharmaceutical. And big pharma companies make up part of those indices. And you know, pharma has a bullseye on their back, and it's bipartisan at this point. Um, so they're, they're probably looking at some change coming. And so this, this is my personal analysis of the healthcare index being far below the broader indices, historically so, 16% down, uh, is you know, rumination about Medicare for all, pharma regulation, and then way below the radar, far below in my estimation, Affordable Care Act being in some legal jeopardy. Um, so you guys have been an incredible audience. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you all. Big round of applause for our panelists. Thank you guys. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.